Listener. The first thing to know about Palmer Lucky is that he's not just lucky, he's brilliant. This is a guy who invented the virtual reality headset when he was a teenager and sold it to Facebook for a huge amount of money. So now at 31, he's seeking to bring the innovation, the imagination, and the speed of development into the world of munitions and armaments and weapons. And he sees that as the only way the Western democracies are going to be able to defend themselves ultimately against the authoritarian regimes, Russia and China. Because one advantage, Palmer argues, is that the free countries, the democratic countries, are much more innovative. But you've got to make it happen. Palmer Lucky, great to see you again. It was wonderful to see you at your uh, office and uh, factory down in uh, California in April. You're 31 years of age. You invented the Oculus Rift VR headset when you were a teenager. Okay, I'm Palmer Lucky. I'm the founder of Oculus. I'm super passionate about virtual reality. I've always loved games. I've always wished I could step inside games. Who hasn't? And now you're heading the most innovative military technology company in the world, Andrew. And you have a great Australian connection. You're developing for the Australian Navy, the Ghost Shark. You're, you're an innovator, you're working with Australia. We've got so many things in common, except you're very young and I'm sadly very old. <laughs> well, you know what? I, 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 I challenge that. You, so, you know, I, when I turned 30, you know, I, I had a pe- people joke to me that they couldn't call me a whiz kid anymore. I was just a whiz man. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a, I mean, I started my career young when I was a teenager. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, you and me, it feels like we're on the same end of the spectrum, at least from where I am. Well, you know, it's a scary thing. It seemed to me I spent much of my life being the youngest person in the room and always asking myself, why are these grown-ups listening to me? And then, <laughs> and then years later, I was sitting at, you know, as prime minister in the cabinet room and I looked around the cabinet and I thought, I am actually the oldest person in this room. So anyway, but the important thing is to remain innovative. Now, Palmer, Andrew is determined to bring the innovation and technology that we've seen in so many other areas to defence. You know, one of the arguments we always make is that the democracies like Australia and the United States have an advantage over dictatorial regimes because we are, in a free society, more innovative. Do you think we really are more innovative than China or Russia? I think that we are in specific areas, but at the same time, we can't let it go to our heads and think that we're better at everything. I mean, when I was at Oculus, we manufactured the Oculus Rift and our you know our other hardware primarily in China. And we did that because it's not... A lot of people think that you go to China to manufacture just because it's lower cost. That's actually not necessarily the case. Uh, China is actually one of the more expensive manufacturing options among many these days. The key is that they have people who are experts and specialists in certain technologies that are not really developed in the Western world. If you want to build batteries, if you want to build certain types of optics, if you want to build certain types of displays, you really have no choice but to go to China. And so the United States is innovative. I think Australia is innovative. And we kind of hang our hat on that 
you know, spirit of being innovators. But at the same time, we've made a lot of decisions over the last few decades that have resulted in a lot of our expertise, especially in innovative manufacturing techniques, especially in things like innovative ways of actually building at scale. That innovation has really centralized in China, where it's a good idea to start a career coming out of college as, let's say, a manufacturing process engineer. You don't see that so much in Western democracies these days, which I think is is, is a scary thing. Well, what went wrong, Palmer? Because I mean, it's 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 in it's right across the board. I mean, right. For example, take solar panels, probably the single most important type of uh, renewable energy, uh, solar. Uh, 85, 90% of all of the solar panels in the world are made by China. I mean, it's extraordinary that one country dominates it. And it's not just because they're cheaper. Solar is a fantastic example because people say, well, why can't we just, you know, do that here? Is it just the cost of labor? And I have to explain to them that, in fact, many of these Chinese solar companies are better than us at making things, not because they're cheaper, but because they're better at it. They're smarter at it. There's more people working on it. There's a certain quality to quantity all its own. And when you have a billion plus people to draw on, you're going to have some really brilliant people come out and and work on these things. So, I mean, China's, China's not just making cheap solar. They're making great solar and they're doing it arguably better than any other nation in the world. Yeah. Do you think the democracies have just been asleep at the switch? Oh man, I think it's actually even worse than that. I mean, asleep would have been maybe a little bit more justifiable in hindsight. We could tell ourselves that we just weren't weren't paying attention and then China rose. But in fact, the democracies of the world to a large extent created this situation twice. First, when we decided that China was going to be westernized by us giving them very favorable trade treatment, by you know letting them into the World Trade Organization. The idea was that we were going to westernize them through commerce, that they would become more egalitarian and more democratic through time, driven by, you know, inevitably by these kind of free trade agreements that were actually very, very favorable to China, not so much to us. Uh, they, they were agreements that were great for China. We thought that that would turn them into being more like us. And I think that was the mistake that we made. We actually just supercharged their economy, supercharged their innovation base, allowed them to get away with stealing technology for a very long time under the idea, well, you know, China's not great right now, but they're they're moving in our direction. They're going to be a powerful ally. They're going to be a powerful part of the world economy. Uh, and, you know, all these problems with authoritarianism, these are just growing pains. And it turned out that they weren't growing pains. It's part of a thousand-year strategy that they're thinking with of how they are going to end up back on top, and we're just one step on their way back to the top. Another big mistake that we made, a place where we probably did fall asleep at the wheel, was dealing with the results of China's rise. Uh, You know, put yourself back 10 years ago, and remember how every tech company in the United States desperately wanted to get into China, whether it was selling into the Chinese marketplace, doing more manufacturing into the Chinese marketplace. Our social media companies in the United States were all very, very focused on getting into that Chinese market. What that led to was a lot of technology companies that are based in democratic nations doing things like refusing to work with our militaries because they didn't want to do anything to upset China. It led to them doing whatever the Chinese government wanted in terms of censoring content or in terms of you know staying out of certain regions, again, to, to, to keep them happy. And we created this bizarre, uh, bizarre economic incentive where Western companies had a strong economic incentive to do things that were bad for the democracies that bore them and in favor of China, a nation that uh, was an authoritarian regime that they nonetheless stood a lot to benefit from. Yeah, I'd say the most optimistic version is, you know, those tech companies hoped the same thing everyone did. 
that China would become more like us in the end. I, I think that people have finally woken up to that not being the case. Yeah, I, I don't know where to what extent looking back now with the benefit of hindsight, how much of this was just wishful thinking. But, you know, a great example is a, a speech George W. Bush gave actually during the campaign in, in uh, 99, I guess, in which he said, you know, as trade will bring economic growth and with economic growth, you will get prosperity and that will bring democracy. And he and this was this was literally the assumption that everyone was proceeding on. And I mean, yep. the reality is that China is, uh, and I'm saying this as someone who did business in China extensively in the early 90s, China is much richer, much stronger militarily in every respect, far more technologically advanced, but more authoritarian. It's more authoritarian now than it was 30 years ago. And of course, technology gives the central government the ability to surveil and monitor all of these tools that digital technologies, the internet and so forth, that we yep. believed were going to create enormous freedom have in fact, of course, and this is true of most technologies, they can be used for good and bad. And in this case, they're being used for surveillance. But Palmer, on the, what you're doing, Andrew is bringing the pace of innovation and technology to military applications and yep. and particularly with, with drones and autonomous systems. Can you just flesh that out a little bit for us? Well, we're trying to undo some of the problems that have happened by taking people out of industries that have bent over for China and instead are bringing them into the fold, working on military technologies that will help the West and our partners and allies around the world stand up to China. So when we hire people, we're not necessarily just hiring people who have worked in defense contracting for years or decades, we're hiring a lot of our people from companies like Google, you know, like like Tesla, uh, like Facebook. People who would not have had an opportunity to work with the military in those companies are flocking here because they see an opportunity to do something that matters. And when you do that, you end up bringing a more innovative approach just naturally. You don't have to beat it into the heads of these people. I often talk about how the Android approach to innovation designing new systems, manufacturing new systems, and shipping them at scale. It's not magic. It's not new ideas that we have. We're just applying normal industry standard best practices and techniques that are practiced across the entire commercial technology sector. And we're bringing them to an industry where that hasn't typically been the case. And simply by doing so, we're able to punch way above our weight. It's a, it's a little bit of an unfair fight sometimes, you know, because when you, when you bring in these agile development practices from companies that are used to shipping a new product every single year over and over and over again, and then shipping millions of that product out into the world, uh, you end up with a very different pace and cadence than companies that are used to decade-long development cycles with another decade-long manufacturing and shipping cycle. I mean, in, in years past, the US Defense Department was absolutely the single biggest funder of innovative technological development in the United States, DARPA, the internet itself, so, so many other aspects. You, do you feel defense has become sort of too big, too slow, less innovative in modern times? I think that that's a big part of it. I, part of it is also global dynamics. Like it, the reality is the United States system of, of procurement and manufacturing works pretty well when you're in an existential fight. Uh, so I'd say like cost plus contracting during World War II, very widespread, wasn't really a problem. Uh, when, you know, when, when you had an entire whole of nation effort to defeat real adversaries 
Nobody was dilly-dallying. Nobody was trying to figure out how to stretch their contracts and you know, for, for a few more years, for a few more dollars. Uh, and I would say maybe even to a lesser extent, but still somewhat, the Cold War. Uh, you know, the Cold War is one of the one of the one of the best wars to happen for humanity in that we got a lot of really good technology out of it the internet microchips going to space gps we got a lot of cool stuff out of the cold war uh, relative to how hot that war ever got and i'd say since the end of the cold war we've been in a period of relative stability between superpowers uh, but we've kept the same processes that we used when we were in great power competitions and we've kept spending in the same way. I think that's really been one of the big mistakes as the rest of the commercial world shifted to more efficient ways of developing technology. Now, we, we talk about a cold war. There's a very hot war going on in Ukraine at the moment. What you've been doing, what Andrew's been doing, and what the war in Ukraine is telling us about the need for a more innovative approaches to military technology? Yeah, I can't talk about all the specifics for obvious reasons, but we've been involved with the invasion since the very beginning. So we've had hardware and software in Ukraine since about two weeks into the war, and that support has continued to today. Recently, there was a large, uh, a large procurement that was publicly announced by the U.S. government of some of our smart loitering munitions. So I can talk about that. So in that particular case, yeah, that's one of the things that we're providing. Uh, but a, a variety of different systems, you know, not 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 just not not just one one component. And I'd, I'd say there's two things that Ukraine has really made a big difference on. The first is reinforcing inside of the U.S. military, and I think militaries around the world, the idea that you really want to build tools that make countries like Ukraine too prickly of a porcupine for nations like Russia and China to step on in the first place, right? The right time to arm them with cutting edge technology was not now. It's not a panic response where we're trying to flood all of these new systems into their country as they're fighting for their lives. The right thing to do would have been to equip them with many of these systems before the war started so that it never would have happened in the first place. There's a wide range of capabilities that almost certainly would have deterred Putin from invading Ukraine in the first place. And these aren't technologies that we would or should abstain from providing to allies and partners. I'm not talking about nuclear weapons here. I'm not talking about ICBMs. I'm talking about tools that allow you to know where your enemy is, to provide precise targeting of aircraft that are trying to bomb your capital. I mean, these are things that really are no-brainers. And I think that people are looking at Ukraine and realizing we need to make sure this doesn't happen again. We need to equip our partners with the tools they need so that it's unthinkable to do something like this again. The Secretary-General of NATO says its support for Ukraine is making a difference in the war with Russia. We don't see any signs uh, from President Putin from Russia that they are actually preparing for peace or, or any real uh, negotiations. Uh, but at the same time, we know that the more uh, ground uh, Ukraine is able to gain uh, through this counteroffensive, uh, the stronger their hand will be at the negotiating uh, table. Palmer, do you think that technology, you know, autonomous systems, sensors and so forth, have given an advantage to the defender in the sense that they can use asymmetric techniques to deny access, you know, area access denial tools. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, without a doubt, especially I'd say in the realm of ground systems. I mean, if you have good sensor coverage and if you know where everything is that your adversary is sending towards you, huge swaths of tactics become unviable on the part of your adversary. 
you saturate an entire country with sensor coverage to the point where, let's say, you can't hide a battalion of tanks or you can't have huge troop formations, you know, hold up in the woods somewhere for weeks at a time without ever being under threat, those tactics become non-viable. And I think if, again, if Ukraine had had these tools at the beginning of the war that they have now, Russia never would have been able to perform any of the land assault techniques that they did during the opening weeks of the war. They would have been completely non-viable from, from the very beginning of the war. In the submarine domain, autonomy has been one of the goals that's yet to be realized at a large scale. You're developing Ghost Shark with uh, the Australian Navy. Obviously, you, you know, you'd be limited in things you can say, but just describe what that project is about and what you see as its significance. Because, you know, personally, I think autonomous underwater vehicles are the future of the submarine domain. I see it the same way. And I say that as someone who likes manned submarines too. I actually own a manned submarine. So I, 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 I have a, I have actually I have two. I have a two-man sub and a fifty-man sub. So, so you're a latter-day Captain Nemo. I, I, you know, one of my favorite books growing up was Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. I think, uh, I, I, I really appreciate science fiction that gets into in, into the technology of the story rather than just treating it as window dressing. But that's a topic for another day. So, I, yeah. and, and look, I know a lot of submariners, and I think you're going to see collaboration between manned submarines and unmanned submarines. But there's a lot of things you can do with unmanned submarines that manned submarines either cannot do or you don't want them to be doing it on a regular basis. You know, I mean, Ghost Shark is basically a robotic autonomous submarine that can carry very useful payloads for useful ranges, useful distances, useful depths. I can't get into the details. Uh, but you want to do this so that you can deploy large quantities of underwater vehicles at a cost that is not going to bankrupt your nation. You know, if you want to have full awareness of what's in the sea, you really have to do that using autonomous systems. You can't have enough manned submarines to saturate the entire ocean. And at the, at the same time, you, you mentioned how ships on the surface are going to have a hard time hiding. And you're right. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that you could conceive of an entire U.S. carrier group hiding from all the other superpowers in the world and say, yeah, we can hide an entire group of ships around an aircraft carrier and they really won't even know where we are. Those days are past. One of the only areas that you can hide things really is is underwater. Well, it's yeah, it, it, I mean, it seems to me that for, for ISR, you know, for, for intelligence gather, gathering, surveillance and so forth, an autonomous underwater vehicle has got to be a superior platform because it's smaller it's it's uh it's silent it's quieter too quieter yep. yeah it's just very hard to detect and if it is detected you can have self-destruct mechanisms in it so that which you obviously can't do with a manned submarine well and you can perform missions you wouldn't want to send a manned submarine on at least not with any regularity you could say you know what we're we're going to send a bunch of unmanned systems into an area where we know they will be detected we're certain they will be detected. We are certain that large numbers of them will be destroyed and they're able to accomplish their mission nonetheless if even a few of them make it to where they need to be. That's not something you can afford to do with a large fleet of manned submarines. That's, 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 that's not the way that I think we want 
our our, our no. wartime strategy to be. I don't think we want to be sending submarines of people to their doom. Yeah, I think I think recruiting would be tra- it's challenging enough to get people to serve in submarines. I That's think. right. <laughs> That's right. So Palmer, what about killer robots? You know, ro- robotic devices that will make decisions about whether to shoot and kill autonomously. I mean, this is a very controversial thing. What what are your views on that? I'm a huge fan of killer robots. Hey, Samantha, what's the weather like today? I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Human Rights Watch is so concerned about the dangers of these fully autonomous systems that we think that a preemptive, comprehensive prohibition on the development or production of these systems needs to be enacted immediately. I mean, the the thing that people generally get worked up about is that they think that a lot of these challenges are new challenges. You know, they, they think that this is Pandora's box being opened for the first time, that perhaps there's no rules and regulations around how these things are used. Usually what I point out to people who are on the side of, let's say, banning killer robots, they say, oh, no, 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 we shouldn't allow the development of weapon systems that are able to destroy a target, uh, you know, because they decide to strike it. And I say, well, wait a second. We've been doing that for a few decades to great effect and with and with a great reduction in harm. I mean, look at the CWIS and CRAM systems that are defending military bases and vessels all over the world from incoming mortar fire, incoming missile fire. They have to work by identifying and firing on targets that are a threat. And you can't really have a person in the loop because the time between when a supersonic missile crosses the horizon, skimming across the sea, and when it hits your boat, it's measured in seconds. Now, People say, well, okay, you should have a person in the loop. A person should have to decide that you fire on that target. To which I would say, well, to what end? You could put a person in that loop, but why do it if they're not going to add meaningful analysis of it at any level? I mean, are you going to have a guy who basically has the red light comes on, there's a thing on his radar coming in, and he has one second to hit a button to say, yeah, shoot? I guess you could claim that that's human oversight, but the reality is that that level of oversight shouldn't take place at the level where you have a 19-year-old soldier deciding to push a button in one second to determine if he'll live or die. The decision should be made in the development of the weapon, the development of the algorithms that determine what it fires on, deciding when and how you deploy a system that's able to fire on targets on its own in the first place. That's where we need to be applying the control. So I think people have simplified it to a person needs to always pull the trigger. Misses that, in fact, insisting that a person is the one pulling the trigger ensures you're going to have more collateral damage. For example, if I could have a missile that is able to fly into an area that is, and it's seeking a particular radio frequency signature that I know is exactly the piece of, let's say, comms jamming hardware that I need to destroy, I think that, that is, it's great if I can make sure my missile goes directly into that piece of hardware and destroys it without causing collateral damage in the city around it. There are people who would say, no, no, that's morally fraught. Instead, it's better that we send in a bomber that'll blanket it with Tomahawk missiles and we can take it out that way. At least then a robot didn't decide what to hit. I don't think there's any moral high ground in that. I think that, that is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a comforting way to think about it at a surface level. But when you get down into the realities of who benefits the most from advanced autonomy, allowing us to be more precise in our application of force, it's almost unthinkable that you would deprive weapon systems of those advancements and instead accept higher collateral damage, higher friendly fire losses. The friendly fire incidents you brought up are a great example. If I could have a mine that is able to, with a high degree of certainty, decide whether the thing rolling over it is, uh, you know, 
uh, is, a, is a friendly vehicle versus an enemy vehicle versus a civilian vehicle. What a great thing for it to be able to do. There are people who would say that it's unethical for it to make that determination and to only blow up sometimes. I think that that's great. I think it's great it's not going to blow up the bus full of kids. I think it's great it's not going to blow up the transport full of U.S. troops. I think it's great that it's going to blow up when a Russian tank goes over it and only when a Russian tank goes over it. And that's that's my strongly held view. You know, I've been doing these podcasts on the theme of defending democracy. And uh, your company and your work is absolutely at the pointiest end of the defense of democracy, whether it is in the Ukraine or or elsewhere around the world. So uh, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for your work. And thank you above all for the partnership you have with, with my country, Australia, where, you know, we're working together and, you know, Australia and the United States allies uh, for so many generations, but uh, now more than ever, uh, defending democracy together. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing the same thing, and I look forward to seeing you next time I'm down under. I'm, I'm there all the time, so uh, I'm looking forward to it. Great, Palmer. Thank you so much. The podcast was written and produced by myself and Lisa Main. Music was composed by Helena Chaika.